Amen. Well, good morning, Haynes Creek. Hope you are all doing well today. It is good to see each and every one of you. Thank you for joining us today. Second week in the school. Uh, I just want to say a special thank you to all of you who helped set up today and also those of you uh, who helped last week and helped with our work day yesterday and last weekend. Uh, really, really appreciate all the hard work. We could not do this without you. So big thank you to everyone who has helped out these last couple of weeks. Um, and here's the thing, we, we need you to continue helping out, all right? So you thought we were going to break, but no, we need you more on Sundays, all hands on deck. If y'all can be here early serving, helping set up, sticking around to tear down, uh, we seriously cannot do this without you. This requires uh, a lot, and uh, if it rests on the shoulders of a few of us, uh, they're going to leave eventually. So we don't want that. We don't want to crush anybody. We want to help everybody out, serve alongside each other. Uh, so continue to help out, continue to, to get here if you can. I really, really appreciate that. If it is your first week, I want to say a special welcome to you. Uh, we're so excited that you're here checking things out, worshiping with us, and I would love a chance just to reach out and follow up with you. So if you do me a huge favor, uh, at some point during the service, just let us know that you're here. You can do that one of two different ways. You can just text welcome to the number you see right there. That's all you got to do, just text welcome to that number. Or if you prefer, we have our welcome cards out here at our table. Uh, you can just fill one of those cards out on your way out today and just leave that right on the table where you found it. Again, this just gives me a chance to follow up and say thank you so much for uh, your visit. And uh, you find us going through the book of Acts. So today we're going to finish out Acts chapter 12. So you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 12. We're going to go through the whole chapter. And then starting next Sunday, we're going to begin a new section in Acts that focuses entirely on the missionary journeys of Paul. And we're setting this aside as a, as a new series, kind of a new section within Acts that we're calling Sent. Uh, focusing on what it looks like to live a life of meaning, significance, and purpose, something we, we all long for. We all long to make a positive impact in this world, and that can only happen through Jesus Christ, through living the way that he calls us to. And we're going to see that with the life of Paul. So and that's going to start next Sunday. We've got these invite cards on our table out there. I would encourage you to use this, take advantage of this opportunity to invite folks to come check out what the Lord is doing here at our new location. It's a perfect time to do that, so that'll again start next Sunday with Acts chapter 13. But again, uh, we're gonna we're gonna go through Acts chapter 12 today. So just kind of recap as you're turning there. Uh, when we finished last Sunday, Acts chapter 11, we we were focusing on a new church, a church in the city of Antioch, and that is going starting in Acts chapter 13. That is going to be the primary sending place for the church to go on this global Gentile-focused mission of God. It's going to be uh, the launching pad of Paul's ministry journey. So Antioch places, uh, it takes a, a primary role starting in Acts chapter 13. So it's a big deal for us uh, to focus on that and see what was going on last week. And then this week, we're going we're gonna to shift back to the church in Jerusalem. So we're going to go back to Jerusalem. We're going to go back to the church there. We're going to go back to Peter. And Luke, the author of Acts, is going to use this as an opportunity to kind of close out the chapter of the Jerusalem church, kind of close out the focus on Peter. We're not really going to see Peter. He's going he's gonna to pop in in Acts chapter 15. Jerusalem's going to pop in in Acts chapter 15, but it's primarily going to be uh, a more worldwide, global mission from here on out. So Luke is using this as an opportunity just to kind of wrap that up, tie a nice little bow around the ministry in Jerusalem before he shifts focus. So this is not necessarily happening chronologically. So uh, Acts chapter 12 is kind of happening alongside what is going on in Antioch, in Acts chapter 11. Just kind of keep that in mind as we kind of place this in our minds, what's going on. So let me, let me read it, and then we will, we will spend our time digging into it. So Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. It says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. 
And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, dress yourself, put your sandals on. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And when he went out and followed him, and he did not know that what he was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. But when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and all that the Jewish people were expecting. But when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had com- completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Okay, so a lot going on in this passage. And like I said, with this, we're, we're shifting back to the church in Jerusalem. We, we see this guy, Herod, who's king over this area, and he's leading a persecution against the church. He, he kills James, the apostle, James, first apostle that was killed for his faith here. Uh, We see Peter is arrested, and and Herod plans to kill him also. He's got to wait until after the Passover. Uh, So he's he's in prison, and and we see yet another prison escape, right? We've already seen this happen with Peter and the other apostles. They were arrested in Acts chapter 5, and now here, again, they're they're set free as well in Acts chapter 12. And he goes to John Mark's mom's house, and and they're praying for Peter, but but they can't believe it, right? They're, They're praying asking God to set him free. He does so, and then they're like, no, that didn't happen, right? So they're, they're shocked. They're surprised that Peter escaped. He's, he's standing outside for a little bit there, and then Herod, he, he moves on. We see him go back up to Caesarea, and we see his eventual fate as well in Caesarea, and, and all the while, all the while, all, this stuff is going on the whole time. What's the Word of God doing? What's the mission of God doing? It's expanding. It's growing. It's increasing. People are putting their faith in Jesus. God is growing his church, So what can we learn from this passage today? 
Well, today for our time, I want us to focus in on Herod and how he's contrasted with the ways of God. So Herod lives his life a certain way, pursues certain things, values certain things, chasing after certain things, and that's contrasted with how God calls us to live, what God calls us to focus on. So I want to look and see what's being contrasted here between Herod and the ways of the world and the ways of God. And there's three things that are contrasted against each other in this passage. So if you're taking notes, first one, first point here is worldly power versus godly power. Worldly power versus godly power. So again, in Acts chapter 12 here, we're introduced to a new character, right? New guy on the scene is King Herod. King Herod. Now, who is Herod? If you're familiar with your New Testament at all, you might be saying, you know what? I've heard that name before. I've heard Herod before. Now, we see that name a lot. So how, what's going on here? Is there just one Herod? Is there many Herods? There's lots of Herods, right? There's a lot of Herods. So you got to kind of parse through what's going on to, to see who, who this is. And I just want to give you a little background so, we, so we're all on the same page. We know what's going on. So when the Roman, the Roman Empire, which is the ruling empire of the day right now, when they took over an area, what they would do is they would set up somebody to kind of rule over that area. Now, sometimes it would be a Roman military official, somebody like that, somebody politic, politician, whatever. But a lot of times it was, it was a local person, and they would put these local people in charge of that area, people that, that would, you know, give service to Rome and loyalty to Rome and all that kind of stuff. So that's what kind of happened here. Herod is not... Roman. He's, he's of Jewish descent. Uh, so the first Herod that we see in the Bible is Herod the Great. And this is going back to the Christmas story when Jesus was born, and we see the wise men come, and who do they go to see? They go to see Herod. And Herod finds out, oh, there's a king of the Jews that was born. What, what does Herod do? He kills all the, he tries to kill all the baby boys two years and under, because he can't have anybody challenge his authority. So that's Herod the Great. And if that wasn't enough to tell you what a terrible person that guy was, what we also know about Herod the Great, he had seven sons. The first three he killed so that they would not challenge his throne. So this dude, he's a wicked man. So that's Herod the Great going back to the Christmas story. The second Herod that we see in Scripture is one of his sons that he allowed to live. And uh, we see this in Matthew 2.22, and, and he's also a wicked guy. And we're told that the reason that Jesus settled in Nazareth, his family settled back there, is because of how wicked this other Herod was and how much he was destroying people and just a, just a wicked man. So they wanted to go away from that in, in Bethlehem and go back up to Nazareth. And then now we have uh, another Herod, uh, is, is Herod Antipas. And he's the guy, if you remember the story of John the Baptist, John the Baptist was eventually arrested by a man named Herod and beheaded by a man named Herod. That's Herod Antipas. This is uh, another son that he allowed to live, one of the, one of the four that he allowed to live. And then now we have in Acts chapter 12, Herod Agrippa. And Herod Agrippa was the father, or the son of, the, of one of the, the first three sons that Herod killed, all right? So remember, he killed three of his sons. One of those guys that he killed was Herod Agrippa's dad. So his grandfather killed his dad. Great family dynamics. I'm sure they had lots of fun at holidays. So his father murdered, or was murdered by his grandfather. And then Herod Agrippa, young Herod Agrippa, was sent off to Rome to be educated among the ruling class there, we know from history that he befriended future emperors of Rome, Caligula and Claudius, who's reigning at this time. And these are the guys, his buddies, who allowed him to rule in Judea and the surrounding area. So that's, that's Herod Agrippa here. So he's king over this area. And as we know from the story, he desperately wants the approval from the Jewish people. So what does he do? He, 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 he persecutes the church, right? He's trying to gain their approval, and he does so by persecuting the church. It says that, that he laid violent hands on another Translation says that he violently attacked the church, violently went after the church. 
So what we see in this is, is Herod's a powerful man, right? He, he, he's a big boy in charge, right? He's the big king, and he's exerting his power over the church by persecuting them. And eventually he, he kills James, the brother of the apostle John, the first apostle that was killed for his faith, the second martyr in the book of Acts. We saw Stephen being the first one in Acts chapter 7, and now here James, the apostle, is being killed for his faith. And we see Peter arrested yet again, and Herod has full intention of killing Peter just like he did James. He just got to wait until after the Passover. So what does he do? Another show of power. He arrests Peter, he puts him in prison, and he has what it says, it says four squads of soldiers guarding one prisoner. Now a squad was made up of four soldiers. So he's got four sets of four soldiers, 16 soldiers total guarding one dude. Guarding one guy. And not only that, when, when they're at night and they're supposed to all be sleeping, what's, what's Peter doing? He's sleeping between two guards chained on either side of him, right? Like Herod is not gonna let this guy go. So he's exerting his power, showing off his power in a lot of ways. And then there's God, and there's God, right? So Herod's got this big show of, of power and look at these soldiers and I've got you chained up. And what does God do? He frees him with one angel, right? Like this is nothing, this is nothing for God. This is nothing for him. Sets him free with one angel, Keeps everybody asleep. Chains just falling off. Doors opening automatically. And Peter just waltzes right out of the prison. So this passage opens up describing a pretty scary situation. And I think we need to just pause and sit in that for a moment. Because when we read it, I mean, you know, I read it fairly quickly. Like we just kind of breeze over. Oh, there's persecution. Oh, James got killed. Oh, Peter's arrested. Oh, then Peter gets set free. That's really awesome. We got to remember these first few verses. Try to put yourself in the place of one of these church members, these, these disciples, these young followers of Jesus in this time, they see one of their primary leaders get killed by the sword. They see the, the main guy that's been leading them and directing this mission get arrested with full intention of being put to death just like James. I'm mean, trying to imagine the, the, the fear that these believers would be under. So as this passage opens up, it's describing a pretty scary situation. I'm sure there was a lot of fear. I'm sure there was a lot of doubt. And if they're doing this to, to the guys who, who you know, had some, had some place of, of authority within this community, like Peter and James and the apostles, like, man, what are they going to do to just your average, regular church member? This is a pretty scary situation. It seems like, oh, man, the church is in, is in real trouble. It's in real trouble. But God's got other plans, right? God's got, a, God's got a surprise twist in this passage. Anybody in here love surprises? Anybody? It's okay to admit it. It's all right. If you love surprises, that's great. I personally don't like them at all. Don't, want any, don't need to be surprised, especially like when it comes to gifts. Like I don't, I don't need you to, if it's, if it's a surprise. No, I don't, I don't like that. No, just tell me what it is and I'll be much better. I don't know what that says about me. I've got probably some issues that I need to work out. But anyway, I don't like surprises. I think I get it from my dad. My dad also doesn't like surprises. He, especially when it's like, like movies that he's watching, he has called me numerous times to make me tell him the ending of a movie before he'll continue watching it. I remember this one time where I really let him dangle on. If you guys remember the movie I Am Legend with Will Smith, it was, it's really a documentary about what the eventual end of the coronavirus pandemic is going to be, but uh, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But anyways, he's, he's like the last man on earth, and this virus has just like affected everybody and turned everybody into zombies. Anyways, very intense movie, and it really like gets your heart pumping and going, and I remember my dad calling me, and he's like, I'm watching this, because I saw it in theaters. I was like, dude, you got to watch this. It came out. You need to rent it. Get it. You know, this is before Netflix. So I like, get it, uh, rent it, watch it, whatever you got to do. 
And uh, he called me, like, towards the end. He's like, you've got to tell me the ending. I cannot finish watching this until you tell me the ending. And I let him dangle for a while. Let him dangle. I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not gonna. He was just stressed out. Finally, I told him. I was like, you're no fun. I'll just tell you whatever. He lives. It's okay. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. Uh, but anyways, I don't, I don't love surprises. But, but what God does here, man, he, he does a total surprise, right? Like, this is a, a surprise shift. Even the church, the church is praying for Peter's deliverance. And when he's delivered, like when he comes free, knocking on the door, the servant girl, she's so surprised, she doesn't even let him in. She's just, I gotta go tell somebody. Leaves Peter hanging out. He tells, they, they go and they tell the church. And what's the church's response? I know we've been praying for hours for this guy, but no, that didn't happen. He didn't get set free. No, you're crazy. You're crazy. Little girl, go back. Go back to the door. Just keep an eye. No, stop daydreaming, all right? Just, just go back, pay attention. Like, what are you doing? Like, they're shocked. They're surprised. And this is what God does, right? This is what God does. He reminds us over and over again that, that he's got it all in his hands. And it seems like a surprise to us, but it is all in God's perfect timing. And so often we, we focus on these things of the world and we try to wrap our hands around it. We try to work things out in our own mind, in our own ways. And God's just doing his own thing, right? And just leading everything the whole way. And we see that with this passage, right? So Herod's trying to just destroy the church. And what's the church doing this whole time? It's growing, it's expanding, the mission is advancing. God can't be stopped, right? His power cannot be stopped by the things of this world. And yet so often, how do we, how do we live our lives where we, where we crave after worldly power? We desire it. We want it, right? Not, not many of us in here, I don't think, at least. Maybe you can tell me that'd be a really cool story. But I don't think any of us are about to become king over some area, right? Like, we're not going to have the kind of power that Herod had. But in, in, our, in our workplace, in our relationships, we, we try to gain power. Even some semblance, even just some little bit of power in our lives. And why, why is that? Why is that? Well, you know, we feel like it gives us autonomy, Right? If, I, if I can be my own boss, if I can set my own schedule, I can do whatever I want to do, right? Nobody can tell me this or that. I can do what I want to do. Right? It gives, some kind of power gives me autonomy. It gives me uh, security. It gives me a sense of control. When our lives feel so chaotic at times, it, it, it's nice to feel like we're in control of something, right? So we like to have power to, to give us that, that extra bit of, of security. It gives us affirmation. It gives us a sense of superiority, right? Like, oh, man, look at me. Look how I've risen through the ranks. I'm, I'm over. I get to tell somebody what to do now. Like, it gives us this, you know, little boost to our ego. So we love power. We want power. We, we seek after power, just like Herod. But what we see from Scripture is that power always corrupts us, always corrupts us. And instead of seeking the world's power, we, we should rest in God's power. And how do we do that? How do we rest in God's power? It's easy for me, you know, a preacher guy up here just to tell you that and just, hey, rest in God's power. What does that look like? What does that look like? Oh, one of the ways we see in this passage is through prayer. How do we rest in God's power? We pray a lot. We go to God constantly in prayer. Verse 5 says that, that the church was in earnest prayer for Peter. That, that phrase, earnest prayer, means, means originally to, to stretch out fully. And here it kind of gives this idea of persevering, of, of eagerly continuing in something. And that's how we're to pray. We're to eagerly persevere. We're to eagerly continue in prayer. And prayer is how we access God's power. That's how we access the power of God. It's through prayer. It's through coming to the all-powerful, supreme God, ruler of everything, and bringing our requests, bringing our troubles to him, and just casting them on him dumping them at his feet. This is exactly what he wants from us. 
This is exactly what he wants. See, prayer reminds us of how much we really depend on God for everything. This, this little bit of power that we can get in this life gives us, again, this false sense of security, like, I got this, I can handle this, I'm doing this on my own, I don't need to rely on anybody else, I can do this. And that's just not true. That's just not true. Life constantly reminds us how out of control we actually are, right? It constantly reminds us that I'm not, I'm not in control. I can't be in control. It's impossible to control all that I want to control. And that's the point. That's the point. We need, we need constant reminders of that. And that's what prayer does. It reminds us how much we depend on the power of God, the presence of God for everything in our lives. So we rest in his power through prayer. We also rest in his power through sacrifice. So if we can access God's power through, through prayer, how do, we, how do we exercise that prayer? How do we live in that power? Do we do it by exerting power over other people like we see with Herod here? No, it's actually the exact opposite. We exercise God's power through sacrifice. And this is exactly what Jesus shows us throughout his life in ministry. Jesus tells us that, that he came not to be served, but, but to serve. Philippians 2 reminds us that, that he humbled himself all the way to a cross. Now, if anybody had power on this earth, it's God. It's Jesus, second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man, had all the power, right? Could have done anything. And what does he do? He lays that power aside. He lays that power aside and he sacrifices himself for sinners like us. That's how Jesus exercised his power. And that's how we're to do it too. We don't rule and reign over other people. We don't hold things over other people. We don't exert power over other people. We, we live a life of sacrifice. We see this beautifully in the language of, of the poetic language of Revelation. Revelation chapter five says this, starting in verse five. It says, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open a scroll and its seven seals. So kind of the background of this is God has his seals, which is a symbol for God's plan of history for, for all of mankind, for all the world. And nobody can open the scroll. Nobody can open the seals. Nobody can, can uh, implement God's purpose and plan. So John, who's writing this, is, is weeping in heaven because nobody can do it. Nobody can do it. Who, who can have control over every bit of chaos that's in this world? Nobody. But one of the angels, the elders, tells him, no, look who can. The lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus, the conquering lion, has done it. Look, here he comes. And when John looks, we expect to see a conquering lion, right? A big, powerful lion. But no, what does he see? Verse 6, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. A lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, just the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard, and around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many, 
angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. How does Jesus conquer? How does Jesus rule? How did Jesus exercise his power? Through sacrifice. Through living a life of sacrifice by being a slain lamb. And that's how we're to live too. We're to live a life of sacrifice and service to God and service to one another. So we see worldly power versus godly power. The second thing we see is worldly pride versus godly humility. Worldly pride versus godly humility. Herod was a prideful guy. We see this in verses 20 through 23. Let me read this again. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, that's kind of the, the king's chief of staff here, that's what that word chamberlain kind of refers to, and they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And just imagine, like Herod loved this. He loves other nations coming and basically groveling before him, asking for food and help and mercy. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and he took a seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Man, that's a tough way to go, eaten by worms. That's rough. That's rough. So Herod's pride went to his head. He was filled because of his power. He was filled with his pride, and it consumed him, and eventually led to his death. And the Bible tells us over and over again that this is what pride does. Uh, Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Again, we, we see this all throughout Scripture. We see example after example of prideful men and how their pride led to their eventual ruin. A great example that I love to reference is in Daniel chapter 4 with King Nebuchadnezzar. So King Nebuchadnezzar was ruling the Babylonian Empire at this time. Uh, and this was the, the ruling empire of the day. Like, they were the big boys on the block. Like, nobody was challenging them. They were conquering places left and right, all led by Nebuchadnezzar. And this is, you know, if you remember Daniel, the book of Daniel, you know, like, he's the guy that built the big golden statue and made everybody bow down to it. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no thanks. They got thrown in the furnace, right? You remember that story? Daniel chapter 4, we see God give him a warning saying, hey man, you need to humble yourself. Stop being so prideful or things are going to get bad. Things are going to get bad and what's going to happen to you is you're going to basically turn into an animal. You're going to live like you were an animal and everything's going to be taken away from you. So Daniel's pleading with the king to repent and, and to humble himself and the king doesn't. And we see this in Daniel 4 starting in verse 29. It says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 29, at the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of the head until his hair grew long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. That, that's a description. That's what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. All because of his pride. Pride's dangerous. 
Pride is dangerous, and we need to be aware of our pride and repent of it before it destroys us. So just in case you're asking yourself, well, how do I know if I struggle with pride? I went to the internet this week, hopped on the Googles, and, uh, and I, I found 15 signs of pride. So 15 signs, of, you know, I won't make you raise your hand if any of this resonates with you. I won't, I won't do that to you, but just, you know, think about it as I read it. First sign that you know if you struggle with pride is you don't think you struggle with pride. So if you ever say, ah, I don't struggle with that, probably a good sign that you do. Number two, you, you feel entitled, feel that you are, oh, the sense of entitlement comes from a place of pride. Another one, you overestimate your contributions. So you talk about how awesome you are all the time, right? Surely none of us do that. Number four, you rarely say thank you. Number five, you constantly compare yourself to others. I'm sure nobody struggles with that. Number six, you don't learn from the people around you or people different than you. Number seven, you are quick to judge and give your opinion. Surely nobody's ever done that. Number eight, you're overly concerned about what others think of you. Number nine, you're defensive and easily offended. I won't tell you how convicting that is for me to hear. Number 10, you feel threatened by the success of others. Number 11, you talk more than you listen. Number 12, you always need to be right. Number 13, you love to argue. Number 14, you're stubborn. Number 15, you get angry easily or are impatient. Now, I'm sure none of us are convicted by those 15 statements, right? We're all perfectly humble and not prideful at all. Or you're like me, and you read that, and you're like, I am not going to check off how many I struggle with, because that would just be a whole line of check marks. But God doesn't want us to be prideful. He wants us to be aware of our pride so that we can instead walk in humility. Now, what's a life of, of godly humility look like? We know what pride looks like, right? We, we can see pride in other people. We can only see it in ourselves, but we can see it in other people. We know what pride looks like. Well, what does humility look like? First way we walk in God's humility is we recognize God's power and work and blessing in our lives. We recognize that all that we have is from him. Look at, let's go back to King Nebuchadnezzar and see the end of, of his story here. Daniel 4, starting in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So what got Nebuchadnezzar out of living like an ox? Recognizing God's blessing recognizing God's power, recognizing God's work in his life. This is the first step in living a life of humility. We recognize that everything we have comes from God. The second thing, second thing we, to live a life of humility is, is it really flows out of that is we should live a life of gratitude. A, a humble attitude is a grateful attitude. When we recognize that all we have is from God, it should lead us to give thanks constantly, constantly. And look, there's a lot of things going wrong in the world, right? There's a lot of things going wrong around us. There's a lot of, maybe, maybe you're walking through a really hard time right now. Maybe you're walking through just a really difficult season, and, it, and it's easy to just see all of that bad stuff and to not remember 
what God is doing in our lives, what God has blessed us with, that we have been saved by grace. And if that's all we have, we should give thanks forever. So when we recognize what God has done, it should lead us to live a life of gratitude. We should constantly be looking for ways to thank God and, and to praise God for, for all that he's done in our lives. So a humble attitude is a grateful attitude. Number three, a humble attitude, a godly humility serves. It serves. A humble person is one who serves just like Jesus did. Mark 10.45 tells us, I referenced this a little, little bit ago, but Mark 10.45 says uh, that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And again, if anybody deserved to be served, it's God. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. He should have been served. But no, he said, I came to serve. And this is what he calls us as followers to as well, to live a life of service. Pride looks at other people as, hey, what can you do for me? Humility looks at other people and says, hey, how can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I care for you? Another way we live in godly humility is we learn from others. We learn from others. A humble person is one who can learn from those around you. Humility has this posture of listening to those around you. It's one of the biggest things I look for when I, whenever I meet with a young guy that's like, man, I want to be a minister, I want to be a pastor. I try to gauge, do you have a teachable spirit? Do you have a teachable, can, can you learn from other people? Can you, can you humble yourself to hear other people correcting and guiding and pointing you down the path you should go? If not, then I steer those guys away because we don't need more prideful pastors, right? Like that's not what we need. We need humble servants of God. So humility listens to those. And not just learning, but, but listening to other people speaking into your life, right? So quickly we can hear something that we don't like and what's our first reaction? It's judgment. It's, it's being defensive. And I know when I'm in my prideful state and somebody tries to call me out, I can tell you right now my immediate reaction is going to be one of defensiveness. Now, hopefully, the Lord's Holy Spirit working in my life, hopefully I can at least recognize that and repent and, and try to course correct. But pride doesn't want to listen, doesn't want to hear anybody speak truth into their lives. But humility does. Another way we live in godly humility is we confess failures, mistakes, and shortcomings. Pride never wants to admit that we've done anything wrong, right? We, we want to we wanna blame shift. We want to blame, oh, well, that, that's not my fault. That's, that's this person's fault. Oh, that's not my fault. It's, it's my circumstances fault, right? If my job was different, if my boss was different, if, if, if I lived in a different place, if I had, you know, kids that would listen, whatever. Like, we just constantly blame when we're in our pride. Instead of owning our mistakes, owning our sin, owning our failures. So humility leads the way in confession. And not just confession, right? It's easy to just, just admit fault sometimes, but then not actually do anything about it. Like, this is where I can struggle at times. So yeah, I can, sure, I'll admit that I did wrong, but I don't really think that I did, so I'm not really going to change. That's pride. That's pride. If we really had humility, not only would we listen, not only would we confess, but we would, we would change. We would change. Last one, a humble spirit lifts up those around you. See, pride loves to take the credit. Tell me how good I am. Tell me how awesome I did. Tell me how good I'm doing. Like, pride wants to hear all that. But humility shares the credit, passes on the credit to those around you, constantly looks for ways to, to lift others up. So in your workplace, are you just looking out for number one? It doesn't matter. You know, I just want to get mine and, and get, you know, praise from, from my boss and make sure I'm looking good and not worry about anybody else on my team. That's prideful. If you're a leader in your workplace, manager, boss, whatever, are you looking for ways to, to lift up those around you? 
Are you looking for ways to, to delegate to those around you? Pride says, I can do it all on my own. And again, just Travis confession time. I struggle with that too. I can struggle with that very much because sometimes it is easier to do it on your own, but that's not right. All that's gonna do is eventually puff yourself up with pride. So there's just some ways that we live with godly humility. So see, worldly pride contrasted with godly humility here. And the third thing, last thing we'll end here, it's worldly captivity versus godly deliverance. Worldly captivity versus godly deliverance. So we see in this passage, as we said, Herod's consumed by his sin. He was filled with pride. He was filled with this sense of superiority. He was also filled with insecurity, right? Like he only, he's only doing this stuff to get approval from the crowd, from the Jewish people. So he was filled with sin, and it just, it held him captive, held him captive. And eventually, God held him accountable. He was filled with pride, filled with sin, continued in that sin, and God held him accountable. Verse, four, verse 23, what does it tell us about Herod? What happened to Herod? An angel of the Lord struck him down, struck him down. If you underline or, or highlight things in your Bible, I want you to circle, underline something, that word struck, struck. He struck him down. This is exactly what sin does. That's exactly what sin does, right? It traps us and it kills us. Proverbs 5, 22 through 23 says, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline because of his great folly he has led astray. This is what our sin does. It traps us, holds us down. It consumes us, it holds us captive. Romans 6, 23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Our sin kills us. Our sin kills us. We deserve death because of our sin. That's what we deserve. That's what we've earned. We deserve death and hell and separation from God for all of eternity. That's what we have earned. But God doesn't want this for us. He wants a different way. Look at, look at the rest of that verse. Keep it up there, guys. Look at the rest of that verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God for that. How amazing is that good news? And I love that, he, that Paul says it's, it's the free gift of God. We can't earn it, and we certainly didn't do anything to deserve it, and yet God freely gives it to us. All he says is, is any of those of us who turn to him in faith, turn to him in repentance, turn to him in belief, he saves us. He saves us. And this is what God wants to do. He wants to set us free from our sin, just like he did Peter. Just like he set Peter free in the prison, he wants to set us free from the prison of our sin. Look at verse 7. Go back to verse 7. What happened to Peter? He's sleeping there, chained between two soldiers, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, a light shone in the cell, and what happened? He struck Peter on the side. He struck Peter, woke him up, and what happened to the chains? They fell off. Peter was struck by God and he was set free. Now again, if you underline things in your Bible, I want you to underline that struck because that struck and the struck of King Herod, same word, same exact word, same exact word. The God who holds the wicked accountable, the sinful accountable is the same God who sets the sinful free. He's the same God. And this is what he wants to do. He wants to strike us free. He 
He wants to do that. Look at Romans 6, 17 through 18. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. God wants to set us free. He wants to set us free. He wants to do this. He wants to set us free from the wrath and the consequences that our sin has earned. He wants to do that, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, our God is a perfect, he's a loving, he's a righteous and holy God. And he can't allow sin to go undealt with. If we continue in our disobedience, if we continue in our sin, our fate is gonna be the same as Herod's. When God strikes, it's gonna be one of accountability of wrath and punishment that we have earned. But if we turn to him in faith, he will strike us free. He'll strike us free. He will wipe our slate clean. No more sin. Forgives us of everything. That's the beauty of the gospel. And as believers, if you're a believer in here, you put your faith in Jesus, we are to live as free people. He has set us free. But look, the reality is, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't always feel free, right? We don't always feel like we're free from sin because so often we go back to those chains and we put the chains back on and we live in our sin and we let it hold us captive. And all the while, God's like, no, I've set you free. Don't go back there. Don't go back to that place. But we do. And why, why do we do that? When we struggle with sin, why does it feel like we can't ever gain any traction and we can't ever take any next steps. Why do we feel so entangled in our sin still? A few reasons I want to just give you before we close today. One, self-reliance. So often we rely on our own strength and our ability and our own power to live a holy, righteous life to God. That's kind of the, the teaching that I grew up with. It's yes, the gospel, when you initially put your faith in Jesus, yes, he saves you. Yes, you don't have to go to hell when you die. But guess what? You better still live a holy life while you're here, and that's up to you. It wasn't explicitly said that, but that's kind of how it was taught. There was no, what does it look like to rely on the gospel? The gospel, just so we know, but so we're clear on this, the gospel doesn't just save us for eternity. It saves us each and every single day. We need to rely on the power of the gospel, the truth that Jesus has set us free every single moment of the day to live for him. Another reason why we stay entangled in our sin is we, we excuse or minimize our sin or we justify ourselves. Right? Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Oh, it's only affecting me. Nobody else knows about this. How does this impact anybody else? No, it's just me. We just treat our sin like a little pet that we carry around that we can just somehow control. No, that's, that's, that's not how sin works. It wants to destroy us. It wants to kill us. Another way we stay entangled is we don't take accountability or we don't take responsibility for our sin. You know, it's always somebody else's fault. Let's go back to pride, right? It's always somebody else's fault or, you know, our circumstances are to blame or whatever. That's why I was doing that. That's why I was acting that way. That's why I said those things. Or we hide our sin. We don't confess it. We don't like to talk about our sin. I get it. It's uncomfortable, it's awkward, maybe even a little embarrassing sometimes. I understand that. But I'm telling you, sin left in the dark only grows more powerful. It only grows in power. Or we hate the consequence of our sin, but not the sin itself. And I can't tell you how many times I've had that conversation with somebody as a pastor for the last 15 years. 
You see somebody that, that hates the, oh, I hate how this turned out in my life. I hate that this happened in my life, but they don't actually hate the sin. They just hate the consequence. And they still want to hold tightly onto that sin because they love that sin and they want that sin. They wish things turned out differently. They wish they didn't get caught. They wish they didn't get found out, but I love that sin. It's not going to do anything with that. We're still going to stay trapped in our sin if, we, if that's us. God wants to set us free. So how, how do we live a life of freedom? One, we, we repent and turn back to Jesus. That's what we've talked about repentance for. Repentance is I'm walking and living in my sin, and now I want to repent, so I say no to my sin, and I turn back to Jesus. I turn away from my sin, and I turn to Jesus. That's what repentance is. It's saying, Jesus, I love you more than I love my sin. I want you, your ways, more than I want my sin. Another way we live in freedom is we take our sin seriously. We don't treat it like a pet. We treat it like what it is, that it wants to destroy us and kill us. We confess our sin, confess it to God and to others. We drag that sin in the light. And sure, it's awkward when that happens, but I'm telling you, the only way to get free sometimes is to drag that sin into the light, confess that sin to God and to others. We desperately need that. And then we need accountability. We can't do this on our own, and we're not meant to. We need other people in our lives helping us. Look at what the author's, uh, author of Hebrews says. Chapter 3, starting verse 12, says, take care, brothers, lest there be in you any evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And what's the solution for that? Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. How do we stay from being destroyed by sin? We, we encourage one another. We let people in so that they can speak life and truth and hope and Jesus back into our lives when we're struggling, when we're walking down the path that we shouldn't. Invite people in. So Acts chapter 12 begins with, with death and persecution and fear. And it seems like Herod's ruling today, right? It seems like Herod is about to squash God's mission. But that's just not true. That's just not possible because Acts chapter 12 reminds us that there's always hope in Jesus Christ. It ends with hope. It ends with, with the church increasing, the word of God and the mission of God expanding and growing and people putting their faith in Jesus. And look, at times our, our sin can feel overwhelming, right? At times our, our sin can feel like it's too powerful, that evil and darkness will get the final word, but we need to remember and constantly remind ourselves that Jesus is greater. He's greater and he is more powerful. He's more powerful than Herod. He's more powerful than persecution. He's more powerful than a sinful culture. He's more powerful than Satan. He's more powerful than the temptation that I face. He's more powerful than my sin. He's more powerful than death. Christian in the room, before we wrap up, I just want to talk to you for a moment. Christian believer in the room. Have you gone back to the chains of sin? Have you gone back to captivity? Have you loved your sin? Are you loving your sin more than you are loving Jesus right now? If that's you, if you would say, yes, Travis, honestly, that's me. What do I do? You come back to Jesus. You come back to Jesus. You repent, you turn to him, and you walk, and you live in the freedom that he alone can provide. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And how do we do that? Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated 
at the right hand of the throne of God. Look to Jesus. Turn back to Jesus. Now, if you're here and you would say, I, I've never put my faith in Jesus. I've never, Travis, I've never done that. I, I would, I'm not a Christian, not a believer. I would ask you, where are you at right now? Are you feeling weighed down by your sin? Are you feeling weighed down by your guilt and your shame and your mistakes? Remember that, that the enemy wants to continue to heap that on top of you. And look, the truth is, the truth is we, we all deserve to be held accountable for our sins. Every single one of us. The Bible says for all of sin. That, that includes every single person especially. We are all sinners. And we all deserve to be held accountable for our sin. And God will do that. If we persist in our unbelief, if we persist in our sin, God will hold us accountable. But God also provides a way out. He also provides a way out. He provides a way for salvation. He provides a way for freedom and forgiveness. And that way is Jesus. That way is Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Turn to him for freedom and forgiveness and salvation. He's the only one who can do it. It's going to make all your problems go away. No, not necessarily. It's going to mean that your life is always amazing and peaches and ice cream and rainbows 24-7. No, that's not what that means. It means that we have a hope, though. It means that we have something to fix our eyes on. It means that we have help in our time of need. It means that we have a clean slate. It means that we have love and acceptance and approval from Jesus at all times. It means that we have full forgiveness. It means that we have eternal life. Turn to Jesus. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to do what we do every single Sunday. We're going to step into a time of worship and communion, and this is a time for believers in the room. Put your faith in Jesus. It's time for you. Spend some time in prayer. Maybe you need to spend some time repenting. Maybe just spend some time worshiping Jesus, recentering your heart and your mind on him. And as you're ready, you go to either table over here on the sides. You take the cup and the bread representing his broken body and shed blood for us on the cross and we, we worship our good God and Savior. If you're here and you're not a believer and you wanna talk more about that, you have questions, you wanna, you wanna put your faith in Jesus, I'm gonna be hanging out back there. I'd love to talk with you. Come find me during that time before you leave. Don't go home today without talking to somebody. Or if you need prayer, anything going on, if I can pray for you, like I said, I'll be hanging back there. I'd, I'd love to do that as well. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives, Lord. Thank you for your salvation, Jesus. Thank you for your freedom. Lord, thank you that when we turn to you, Lord, you strike us free. You deliver us. You save us. You rescue and redeem us, Jesus. Thank you for your salvation, Lord. Thank you for doing what only you can do, Jesus. Lord, let us remember that. Let us, let us celebrate that today, Lord. We love you. We ask all this in your powerful name.